Section 1 of the Watergate Report, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Final Report of the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, Volume 1. Chapter 1, The Watergate Break-In and Its Prelude, Part 1. The Watergate drama is still unfolding, because all the facts are not yet in, because all the Watergate criminal trials and the impeachment proceeding are not concluded, and because the President has refused to produce to the Select Committee many crucial tape recordings and other evidence. This report, although it is the Committee's final report, is incomplete, and this report is limited in another way. Because of the massive amount of evidence now available as to Watergate, developed in the committee's hearings and elsewhere, it is impossible in a document of reasonable length to deal with every fact or every version of the facts. The committee, therefore, in preparing this report, has exercised its judgment as to what facts are important and which versions of disputed facts should be included. Others may disagree with our account, but it is the committee's mandate under Senate Resolution Number 60 to present the Watergate affair to the public as it sees it. 1. The Watergate Break-In and Its Prelude In the early morning hours of June 17, 1972, James McCord, Bernard L. Barker, Frank Sturgis, Eugenio Martinez, and Virgilio Gonzalez illegally entered the Democratic National Committee headquarters on the sixth floor of the Watergate office building. Nearby, in a room in the Watergate Hotel, Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy, the supervisors of this burglary operation, stood by keeping in walkie-talkie communication with Alfred Baldwin, who served as a lookout across the street from the Watergate complex in the Howard Johnson Motor Lodge. The mission was ill-fated. Within a short time after the break-in, a Washington Metropolitan Police Department plainclothes unit in an unmarked car responded to a call to assist a guard at the Watergate office building. The guard, Frank Willis, had become suspicious when, for the second time that night, he found masking tape on the edge of a door in the garage leading to the office building. The tape had been placed to hold back the locking mechanism, permitting the door to be opened without a key. Earlier that night, Wills had removed tape from the same door, thinking it had been inadvertently left by a building engineer. The plainclothes unit, under the direction of Sergeant Paul Leeper, entered the Watergate office building stairwell through the garage door and ascended to the eighth floor. The policemen worked their way down to the sixth floor level and entered that floor through the stairwell door, which they found unlocked by the same masking tape technique employed on the garage door. Alfred Baldwin, across the street at the Howard Johnson Motor Lodge, at first took no interest in the unmarked car, which parked in front of the Watergate office building, and in the casually dressed individuals who entered the building. That a plainclothes police squad in an unmarked car that answered the police dispatcher's call was fortuitous. The call initially went out to a marked police car, but that vehicle was on its way to a gasoline station. The dispatcher thus repeated the call for any tactical unit in the vicinity of the Watergate. Had the marked police car answered the call, and had uniformed policemen entered the office building, Baldwin would have immediately taken notice and alerted the burglars who might have escaped. 
the true nature of the break-in might not have been discovered and there might have been no need for the massive cover-up that followed which when exposed became the most serious political scandal in the nation's history baldwin did not become alarmed until he noticed lights go on in the building first on the eighth floor then on the sixth and saw two casually dressed individuals emerge on the sixth floor terrace of the dnc headquarters one holding a pistol then he radioed hunt and liddy and asked are our people in suits or are they dressed casually when the answer came back our people are dressed in suits why baldwin replied you have some trouble because there are some individuals around here who are dressed casually and have got their guns out within minutes sergeant leaper and his unit discovered the five burglars and arrested them hunt and liddy however escaped unnoticed from the watergate hotel baldwin was told by hunt to leave the motor lodge which he promptly did subsequently hunt and liddy were indicted with the five men apprehended at the dnc headquarters united states versus liddy et al indictment of september fifteenth nineteen seventy two and baldwin became a principal government witness against his former co-conspirators all defendants initially pleaded not guilty but as the trial opened in early january nineteen seventy three hunt barker sturgis martinez and gonzalez changed their pleas to guilty the remaining defendants mccord and liddy were found guilty after a trial that left a number of questions which disturbed the trial judge congress and the american people the crimes of wiretapping burglary and conspiracy had been proved but why had these crimes been committed who sponsored them what were the motivations was the break-in as the white house immediately claimed merely a third-rate burglary this report attempts to put this crime in focus we discuss below the background and planning that led to the break-in as well as other activities by the burglary team now uncovered we then deal with the extensive cover-up that followed the apprehension of the burglars a the background of watergate the watergate break-in cannot be understood unless viewed in the context of similar white house activities the evidence presented below shows that from the early days of the present administration the power of the president was viewed by some in the white house as almost without limit especially when national and internal security was invoked even criminal laws were considered subordinate to presidential decision or strategy the manifestations of this philosophy that preceded the watergate break-in are now discussed one the houston plan the earliest evidence of this concept of presidential power existed is found in the nineteen seventy top secret document entitled operational restraints on intelligence collection and the various memorandums from tom charles houston to h r haldeman which were first revealed by john dean in preparation for his testimony before the select committee dean placed these papers some of which bore the highest security classification in the custody of chief judge john sirica of the u s district court for the district of columbia this step was taken by dean on the advice of counsel to avoid violation of any presidential directive of federal laws prohibiting release of government documents affecting national security after due consideration judge sirica released one copy of these papers to the department of justice and one copy to the select committee pursuant to its motions 
united states versus john doe et al miscellaneous number seventy seven to seventy three may fourteenth nineteen seventy three the committee with the aid of various intelligence agencies reviewed these documents while the committee sealed a few items therein which could involve national security considerations it concluded that these papers for the most part dealt primarily with domestic affairs and were unrelated to national security matters the papers as sanitized by the committee were entered into the committee's record during dean's testimony these papers and the president's own statement of may twenty second nineteen seventy three disclose that the president approved the use of illegal wiretapping illegal break-ins and illegal mail covers for domestic intelligence purposes the president was fully advised of the illegality of these intelligence gathering techniques prior to approving them in the top secret document entitled operational restraints on intelligence collection the recommendation for surreptitious entries or break-ins contained the following statement under the heading rationale use of this technique is clearly illegal it amounts to burglary it is also highly risky and could result in great embarrassment if exposed however it is also the most fruitful tool and can produce the type of intelligence which cannot be obtained in any other fashion on july fourteenth nineteen seventy haldeman sent a top secret memorandum to houston notifying him of the president's approval of the use of burglaries illegal wiretaps and illegal mail covers for domestic intelligence in the memorandum haldeman stated the recommendations you have proposed as a result of the review have been approved by the president he does not however want to follow the procedure you outlined on page four of your memorandum regarding implementation he would prefer that the thing simply be put into motion on the basis of this approval the formal official memorandum should of course be prepared and that should be the device by which to carry it out it also appears that the next day july fifteenth nineteen seventy houston prepared a decision memorandum based on the president's approval for distribution to the federal intelligence agencies involved in the plan the fbi the cia the national security agency and the defense intelligence agency in his may twenty second nineteen seventy three public statement the president reported that the decision memorandum was circulated to the agencies involved on july twenty third nineteen seventy however the decision memorandum is dated july fifteenth nineteen seventy indicating that it was forwarded to the agencies on that day or shortly thereafter Houston's recommendations were opposed by J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI. Hoover had served as the chairman of a group comprised of the heads of the federal intelligence agencies formed to study the problems of intelligence gathering and cooperation among the various intelligence agencies. In his public statement of May 22, 1973, President Nixon stated, after reconsideration, however, prompted by the opposition of Director Hoover, the agencies were notified five days later, on July 28th, that the approval had been rescinded. Haldeman's testimony is to the same effect. Dean, however, testified that he was not aware of any rescission of approval for the plan, and there apparently is no written record of a rescission on July 28th or any other date. There is, however, clear evidence that, 
after receipt of the decision memorandum of July 15, 1970, Mr. Hoover did present strong objections concerning the plan to Attorney General Mitchell. Houston was concerned that Hoover's objections would interfere with the plan's implementation. On August 5, 1970, eight days after the President states he ordered rescission, Houston sent Haldeman a lengthy top-secret memorandum on the subject, Domestic Intelligence, which strongly attacked Hoover's objections and made a number of recommendations concerning a forthcoming meeting regarding the plan among Haldeman, the Attorney General, and Hoover. Indicative of the fact that the plan was still quite alive, but imperiled by Hoover, is the following language in this memorandum. At some point, Hoover has to be told who is president. He has become totally unreasonable, and his conduct is detrimental to our domestic intelligence operations. It is important to remember that the entire intelligence community knows that the president made a positive decision to go ahead, and Hoover has now succeeded in forcing a review. If he gets his way, it is going to look like he is more powerful than the president. He had his say in the footnotes, and RN decided against him. That should close the matter, and I can't understand why the AG is a party in reopening it. All of us are going to look damn silly in the eyes of Helms, Gaylor, Bennett, and the military chiefs if Hoover can unilaterally reverse a presidential decision based on a report that many people worked their asses off to prepare and which, on the merits, was a first-rate, objective job. It should be noted that this memorandum indicates that the NSA, DIA, CIA, and the military services basically supported the Houston recommendations. Two days later, on August 7, 1970, Houston sent a brief confidential memorandum to Haldeman, urging that Haldeman meet with the Attorney General and secure his support of the President's decision, that the director, that is Hoover, be informed that the decision will stand, and that all intelligence agencies are to proceed to implement them at once. Houston noted that, Mr. Hoover has departed for the West Coast to vacation for three weeks. If you wait until his return to clear up the problems surrounding our domestic intelligence operations, we will be into the new school year without any preparations. Later, on September 18, 1970, almost two months after the president claims the plan was rescinded, Dean sent a top-secret memorandum to the Attorney General suggesting certain procedures to commence our domestic intelligence operation as quickly as possible. This memorandum specifically called for the creation of an interagency domestic intelligence unit, which had been an integral part of the Houston plan. Dean's memorandum to the Attorney General observed that Hoover was strongly opposed to the creation of such a unit and that it was important to bring the FBI fully on board. Far from indicating that the President's approval of Houston's recommendation to remove restraints on illegal intelligence gathering had been withdrawn, Dean, in his memorandum, suggested to the Attorney General, I believe we agreed that it would be inappropriate to have any blanket removal of restrictions. Rather, the most appropriate procedure would be to decide on the type of intelligence we need, based on an assessment of the recommendations of this unit and then proceed to remove the restraints as necessary to obtain such intelligence. 
Dean's memorandum indicated that the creation of the Interagency Domestic Intelligence Unit would go forward and provide recommendations for the choosing of a unit director to serve as a right-hand man to the Attorney General and for the selection of representatives from the various intelligence agencies who would serve on it. Dean closed his memorandum with the suggestion that the Attorney General call weekly meetings to monitor problems as they emerged and to make certain that we are moving this program into implementation as quickly as possible. Recognizing that Hoover was still a problem, Dean added a note to the bottom of his memorandum. Bob Haldeman has suggested to me that if you would like him to join you in a meeting with Hoover, he will be happy to do so. Hoover, however, never did come completely on board, and the plan for an interagency domestic intelligence unit was never implemented. A clue to the fate of the Houston plan is provided by the edited, unauthenticated, submission of recorded presidential conversations to the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives by President Richard Nixon on April 30, 1974, where the following passage appears. D. What Bill Sullivan's desire in life is, is to set up a domestic national security intelligence system, a White House program. He says we are deficient. He says we have never been efficient because Hoover lost his guts several years ago. If you recall, he and Tom Houston worked on it. Tom Houston had your instructions to go out and do it, and the whole thing just crumbled. P. Inaudible. Dean testified that the plan for the creation of an interagency domestic intelligence unit was the product of White House fear of demonstrations and dissent. Haldeman denied that such an atmosphere of fear existed in the White House. In his statement before the committee, Haldeman gave as the reason for White House interest in improving intelligence gathering operations, the critical proportions of the domestic security problem in 1970, as illustrated by a wave of bombings and explosions, rioting and violence, demonstrations, arson, gun battles, and other disruptive activities across the country, on college campuses primarily, but also in other areas. On this issue, Ehrlichman's testimony corroborates Haldeman's. The Houston recommendations themselves refer to a major threat to the internal security and express the belief that the potential for even greater violence is present and we have a positive obligation to take every step within our power to prevent it for surely drastic violence and disorder threaten the very fabric of our society. The committee notes that the evidence presented to Senator McClellan's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations of the Senate Committee on Government Operations in hearings beginning in July 1970 indicates that, in the several years preceding the hearings, there were significant increases in illegal acts of violence directed against government facilities and a disturbing number of such acts directed against law enforcement officials. Dean testified, however, that the White House concern was directed not only toward violent demonstrations, but also to peaceful demonstrations and dissent. As an illustration, he said, During the late winter of 1971, the president happened to look out of the windows of the residence of the White House and saw a lone man with a large ten-foot sign stretched out in front of Lafayette Park. Mr. Higby called me to his office to tell me of the president's displeasure with the sign in the park and told me that Mr. Haldeman said 
the sign had to come down when i came out of mr higby's office i ran into mr dwight chapin who said he was going to get some thugs to remove that man from lafayette park he said it would take him a few hours to get them but they could do the job two the enemy's list the white house's apparent concern over dissent and opposition is reflected in an organized effort to compile a constantly updated list of the administration's enemies the basic rationale for maintenance of the enemies list is specified in an august sixteenth nineteen seventy one memorandum prepared by dean for haldeman ehrlichman and others it reads in relevant part dealing with our political enemies this memorandum addresses the matter of how we can maximize the fact of our incumbency in dealing with persons known to be active in their opposition to our administration stated a bit more bluntly how can we use the available federal machinery to screw our political enemies in brief the system would work as follows key members of the staff for example colson dent flanagan buchanan should be requested to inform us as to who they feel we should be giving a hard time the project coordinator should then determine what sorts of dealings these individuals have with the federal government and how we can best screw them for example grant availability federal contracts litigation prosecution etc the project coordinator then should have access to and the full support of the top officials of the agency or department in proceeding to deal with the individuals as a next step i would recommend that we develop a small list of names not more than ten as our targets for concentration request that lynn Nossinger do a job on them and if he finds he is getting cut off by a department or agency that he inform us and we evaluate what is necessary to proceed dean's advice to limit the list to not more than ten was not followed even before this memorandum george t bell circulated to dean jerry warren and van schumway a sizable list of opponents that would be useful from time to time the list contains such comments next to various names as a scandal would be most helpful here positive results would stick a pin in jackson's white hat has known weakness for white females a real media enemy on september ninth nineteen seventy one colson sent the same list to dean with blue check marks next to the enemies who were top priority colson concluded i think you will find this a pretty good list right on other exhibits indicate that the list was constantly updated and expanded to include businessmen actors and actresses labor leaders reporters senators and representatives civil rights leaders mcgovern aides leaders of peace organizations general anti-nixon people democratic contributors and others dean testified that the plan to penalize administration enemies was considered important to haldeman ehrlichman and others strachan testified that he believed that the enemies list was in existence when i arrived at the white house in august nineteen seventy the list was maintained by colson's office white house efforts to use the federal bureaucracy to punish its supposed enemies are further reflected in committee exhibits forty four and sixty five exhibit forty four is a memorandum and briefing paper prepared for haldeman for a meeting with the head of the internal revenue service 
which came from John Dean's White House file, entitled, Opponent's List and Enemy's Project. The memorandum is undated and not marked other than its heading. To accomplish, make IRS politically responsive. Attached to this memorandum is an IRS talking paper that concludes with the following. Johnny Walters of the IRS must be made to known that discrete political actions and investigations on behalf of the administration is a firm requirement and responsibility on his part. We should have direct access to Walters for action in sensitive areas and should not have to clear them with Treasury. Dean should have access and assurance that Walters will get the job done properly. Dean recalled that, after an article was published in Newsday on Charles B.B. Rebozo, one of the president's closest friends, Dean was told that the authors of that article should have some problems. Dean discussed this with John Caulfield, who had friends in the IRS. Dean was reluctant to discuss it with Walters. Dean recalls that the IRS did audit the newsmen involved. It appears other enemies were also subjected to IRS investigation and audit. During the September 15, 1972 meeting with the president, Dean reported on IRS investigation of Larry O'Brien, according to information Fred Buzzhart, special counsel to the president, provided to minority counsel. In a memorandum of June 12, 1972, to Dean, Colson wrote that there should be an IRS audit of a union official who, you should know is an all-out enemy, a McGovernite, ardently anti-Nixon. Please let me know if this one can be started on at once, and if there is an informer's fee, let me know. There is a good cause at which it can be donated. In Dean's meeting with the president on September 15, 1972, the president, Dean, and Haldeman discussed retaliation against administration enemies, according to a purported transcript of this meeting, prepared by the House Judiciary Committee, published in the Washington Post, on May 17, 1974, at pages A, 26 to 28. This transcript indicates the president may have known of the enemies list. Haldeman, at the beginning of this meeting, referred to the fact that Colson had gone through, you know, has worked on the list, and Dean's working the, the thing through IRS, and, uh, in some cases, I think. The president allegedly replied, yeah. Other relevant excerpts from this September 15th meeting, based on the Judiciary Committee's purported transcript, appear below, with emphasis added. H. Unintelligible words. John, that is Dean, he is one of the quiet guys that gets a lot done. That was a good move, too. Bring Dean in. But it's... P. Yeah. H. It. He'll never, he'll never gain any ground for us. He's just not that kind of guy, but he's the kind that enables other people to gain ground while he's making sure that you don't fall through the holes. P. Oh, you mean? H. Between times, he's doing, he's moving ruthlessly on the investigation of McGovern people, Kennedy stuff, and all that too. I just don't know how much progress he's making, cause I... P. The problem is, that's kind of hard to find. H. Chuck. Chuck has gone through, you know, has worked on the list, and Dean's working the, the thing through IRS, and, uh, in some cases, I think, 
some other unintelligible things he's he turned out to be tougher than i thought he would which is what p yeah p well just remember all the trouble they made us on this we'll have a chance to get back at them one day how are you doing on your other investigations your how does this unintelligible d i'm just about the end of the uh h what's happened on the bug p hard hard to find on the what h the bug p perhaps the bureau ought to go over h the bureau ought to go into edward bennett williams and let's start questioning that son of a bitch keep him tied up for a couple of weeks p yeah i hope they do they the bureau better get over pretty quick and get that red box we want it cleared up unintelligible d that's exactly the way i i gave it to gray i uh uh d on this case uh there is some bitterness between for example the finance committee and the political committee they feel that they are taking all the heat and and uh all the people upstairs are bad people and they're not being recognized p ridiculous d it is i mean p they're all in it together d that's right p they should just uh just behave and and recognize this this is again this is war we're getting a few shots and it'll be over and we'll give them a few shots and it'll be over don't worry unintelligible and i wouldn't want to be on the other side right now would you i wouldn't want to be in edward bennett williams williams position after this election d no no p none of these bastards d he uh he's done some rather unethical things that have come to light already which he again richie has brought to our attention p yeah d he went down h keep a log on that d oh we are indeed we are p yeah h because afterwards that is a guy p we're going to h that is a guy we've got to ruin d he had he had an ex parte p you want to remember too he's an attorney for the washington post d i'm well aware of that p i think we are going to fix that son of a bitch believe me we are going to we've got to because he's a bad man d absolutely p he misbehaved very badly in the hoffa matter our some pretty bad conduct there too but go ahead d well that's uh along the line uh one of the things i've tried to do is just keep notes on a lot of the people who are emerging as p that's right d as less than our friends p great d because this is going to be over some day and there we shouldn't forget the way some of them have treated us p i want the most i want the most comprehensive notes on all those who tried to do us in because they didn't have to do it d that's right p they didn't have to do it i mean if the thing had been clo uh they had a very close election everybody on the other side would understand this game 
but now they are doing this quite deliberately and they are asking for it and they are going to get it and this this we 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 have not used the power in this first four years as you know d that's right p we have never used it we have never used the bureau and we haven't used the justice department but things are going to change now and they're going to change and they're going to get it right d that's an exciting prospect p it's got to be done it's the only thing to do d well there has been some extensive clipping by the council in this case and i've gone through some of these clippings and it's just phenomenal the uh p yeah d the amount of coverage this case is getting they may never get a fair trial may never get a fair i mean they'll never get a jury that can convict them or pull it together and the post as you know has got a a, a real large team that they've assigned to do nothing but this sh this case couldn't believe they put Mari stan's story about his libel suit which was just playing so heavily on the networks last night and in the evening news they put it way back on about page eight of the post p sure d and didn't even cover it as a in total p i expect that that is all right we've unintelligible h the post unintelligible p is going to have its problems h unintelligible d unintelligible the networks are good with Mari coming back three days in a row and unintelligible. P. That's right. The main, main thing is the Post is going to have damnable, damnable problems out of this. They have a television station. D. That's right, they do. P. Does that come up too? The point is, when does it come up? D. I don't know, but the practice of non-licensees filing on top of licensees has certainly gotten more p that's right d more active in the this area p and it's going to be goddamn active here d laughter silence p well the game has to be played awfully rough i don't know well now you you'll follow through with who will over there who timmins or a ford or a unintelligible there are a number of republicans End of section one.